Well, hello, Grace family. It is always good to be together in this way. And however today finds you, whether it finds you in a time of celebration, or it finds you in a wilderness time, or for most of us probably it finds you in some kind of ordinary time, I hope this finds you trusting in the Lord. And our God is good, and He is faithful through whatever season we find ourselves in. And He has something for us, I believe, in every season and every moment of our lives. So I pray uh, that you experience that, and that today could be a part of that for you. Uh, this morning, we have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Rick Langer. Uh, Dr. Langer is a longtime friend of our Grace community, as many of you know. Uh, he's a professor at Biola University and Talbot Seminary. Uh, he's spoken at many of our men's retreats and on Sunday mornings as well. And it's great to hear from him today. And he'll be continuing our series on the kingdom. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just take a moment as we begin to offer ourselves to the Lord, to offer this time to him that he would use it uh, for our good and for his glory. So I'd like to just put up a, a psalm as a way of entering into this time together. This is Psalm 34. I absolutely love this psalm. Let me just read this to you and let it be our opening reflection. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack no good thing. And I encourage you just to let a phrase from the psalm grab you, grab your mind as we enter into worship today. And maybe it's that first phrase, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe you need to, in some fresh way today, taste the goodness of God. Drink in His grace. And this service can be an opportunity to do that. Maybe it's that phrase of taking refuge in Him. And maybe this has been a week of a lot of anxiety or maybe a lot of burdens that you need to just today find refuge again in your God. You need to come to him and experience his care and his goodness for you. Or maybe today's an opportunity to fear the Lord. And maybe you've been distracted, you've just been running at a certain pace, and you haven't stopped just to give reverence and awe for God. And, and this time can be a time again to worship God simply because he deserves it and he's worth it. So whatever it might be for you, why don't you take a moment to consider one of these phrases as a way of entering into this time with the Lord. And then I'll close in prayer. Well, Father, we invite you to have your way in us through this time. Lord, would your spirit speak your words of truth into our hearts and minds, encourage us, convict us, invite us into a fresh relationship with you again, Lord. So we commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Taste and see that the Lord is good Oh, blessed is he Who hides in him Oh, fear the Lord All of you saints He'll give you everything 
So as we continue looking at these kingdom parables, we'll be in Matthew 13, looking at the treasure in the hidden field. This is Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Join along with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's always great to join you guys down here, Grace. I always look forward to it, whether I'm doing it virtually or live and in person. And so I'm thrilled to be able to be back with you this morning. And I want to talk to you today about, I don't know, it, it is probably one of the most important things we could really talk about. And that is, is Jesus worth it? And of course, the Sunday school answer to that question is, well, yes, of course. But the bottom line is, as we think about that just a little bit more, sometimes it doesn't quite feel that way. This has impressed upon me in a profound way probably over 30 years ago now. I was a pastor at a church in Redlands, and I was doing uh, some premarital counseling for two kids. One of them had been associated with the church. I didn't really know her and then her fiancé, and it wasn't clear for either of them exactly where their faith in Christ was. So I was going to meet with them individually and talk to him about that. So I, I met with a guy, and we were sitting at a Denny's. I can remember the booth. I can remember the spot. This was one of those conversations. And I asked him about what he believed about Christ, and he said, well, he really didn't have any particular faith. And so let me talk to you about that. He said, oh, that'd be great. And so I talk through the gospel, and I talk about, you know, human sinfulness. I talk about God's love for us and the offer that Christ made, the payment Christ made for our sins on the cross. And he seemed really into all this, and he was fine. He was kind of nodding his head and smiling and processing all that. And then I kind of came to the point where it's like, okay, well, what do you want to do? And I said, would, would you like to receive Christ into your heart? And, it, and, the, and then there was this pause. And then he says, well, what are the consequences of that decision? And I laughed. I said, well, in one sense, the one thing you can't do is buy salvation from Jesus. It is truly a free gift. But on the other hand, to tell you the truth, uh, there is nothing in my life that has not been changed by coming to faith in Christ. And there was another long pause. And then he said, I think I'll pass. 
Now, I don't know what you think about that exchange. It sounds in some sense like a failed evangelistic opportunity in that sense, but uh, I don't look at it that way. I've always looked back at that conversation. I thought this isn't about him rejecting the gospel, but rather it's about him not accepting the gospel, but at least he understood what it truly meant. He understood what was offered and he simply made a decision that, no, I don't think it's worth it. And Jesus had exchanges like that in the Gospels all the time, right? He asked people to follow him. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But in all cases, they decided, is Jesus worth it? There's no greater decision that we'll ever make, and it's this decision that I want to talk about today. So the passage that you just heard from Matthew chapter 13 is one of many, a uh, series of seven of these uh, parables of the kingdom. And this is just a super short two parables with a single common message. The parable of the treasure in the field, the parable of the pearl of great price. And in both cases, as you just heard, the person who found the treasure, the person who found the pearl, went out and sold everything they had in order to acquire that wonderful, wonderful treasure. They decided, in effect, that it was worth it. So let's dive into this question. Let me begin by making just a few quick comments about the text partly about the particular verses we just looked at, but then also somewhat about the broader context of Matthew chapter 13. As I mentioned, these are one of a set of parables, and all of these parables kind of deal with the, you might call it the grand battle of the ages, the battle between good and evil. Um, there's seed that dies, or seed that withers, or wheat and weeds, and one gets burned and the other gets harvested. There's good fish, there's bad fish. In all of these cases, there's basically two sides and no middle ground. We must choose a side. There is no none of the above option in these parables. Secondly, these parables all have kind of a season of growing or waiting. Uh, third, these are all parables that conclude with some measure of the final judgment. Not all of them, but the theme in these things have the sense of at the end of the age, there's fiery judgment that comes. Uh, this is what I mean about the great battle of good and evil concluded with that kind of a sense of judgment. And then fourth, there's clearly a sense in these parables of eternal gain or loss that transcends all temporal value. And that is particularly obvious in the parables we're looking at today. So that's just a quick overview of the themes and some of the core issues that loom in the background of all of Matthew 13, and particularly these two kingdom parables that we're looking at here. So that then brings us to this question, is Jesus worth it? Is he the pearl of great price for which you would sell everything you have and buy it? Is he a treasure in the field that you would sell everything to buy the field so that you would own the treasure? Is that really representative of who Jesus really is? Uh, let me begin by an to answer that question just by pointing out that Jesus thought he was worth it. Uh, he constantly calls people to follow him. And I think this is the best evidence that he thought he was worth following. He simply thought that following him was worth abandoning everything else for. One of the most repeated patterns in the gospel is the pattern of Jesus turning to someone and saying, follow me, and then responding by immediately leaving behind their friends, their family, the nets, the tax collector booth, wherever they were at the moment Jesus said that, they just leave it behind and go follow him. It's like they were being commanded to leave a burning building and they just flee and follow Jesus. Those who hesitate to follow 
seem to have reasonable excuses. Some are caring for a dying father. Some say they need to say farewell to their family back home. But interestingly enough, in the Gospels, these people are basically deemed to be unworthy of being disciples. To Jesus, following him is so urgent and important that it demands an immediate response. And delayed following is tantamount to a failure to follow. So Jesus' call to follow is absolutely urgent. It's also absolutely demanding. So the call to follow is a call that Jesus, he couldn't be more transparent about the cost of following him. The cost isn't just friends and families and nets and tax booths, whatever you give up on the spot. Jesus seemed to kind of relish in amping up the apparent extremity of the cost of following him. So Jesus repeatedly associates the call to follow with the call to take up your cross. And there was very little ambiguity about what Jesus meant by that by the time he had been crucified. Uh, it's not only crucifixion in particular that he uses as an image for, for the cost of following him, but death in general. So in John chapter uh, 12, verses 25 and 26, he talks about, uh, you know, following me is like, it's like dying. <laughs> so if you want to keep your life, uh, those who try to keep their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will actually gain it for the kingdom. It's like a seed going into the ground that has to die before it can bear fruit. So Jesus clearly is amping up the cost of following. It's a very demanding choice. He's saying, of course, though, that he is worth it. And his disciples, apparently, were getting the message pretty much loud and clear. Because sometimes they boldly proclaim their willingness to follow Jesus. And they're going to pay the price of following Jesus, even the price all the way into death. Whatever it may cost, they're all good with that. And other times they get a little bit more reflective and say, well, wow, Jesus, we've given up a whole lot of stuff. Is this going to pay off? And he says, hey, whoever has given up friends and family and all these things for me and for the sake of the kingdom is going to receive back 30, 60, and 100 fold. And they're like, oh, phew. So the one thing that wasn't in question was whether or not following Jesus was costly. They were just wondering if they get a payback at the end. And Jesus reassured them in some measure that they truly would. The point, though, is in all cases, what was clear was that following Jesus was not a small matter but a matter of gravest importance, of highest cost, and the absolute most inestimably valuable reward. Third thing that Jesus makes clear about him saying, hey, I'm worth it, follow me, is uh, the way he gives these calls, let me just call them kind of intimately personal or profoundly personal. There's no reasons he tends to give for following him except the encounter with Jesus himself. Is a per, if a prospective disciple doubts or hesitates, Jesus just moves on. The person is then forced to choose between all of his or her other obligations and the call to follow Christ. Uh, it isn't apparently a decision that we really reason our way to. It's a sort of decision that one is compelled to make by the encounter you have with the person of Jesus himself. Great imagery of this is given in John chapter 10 where Jesus is giving the analogy, the, the not a parable, but the kind of a comparison of himself to the good shepherd, likening himself to the good shepherd. And you see this compulsive call to follow Jesus represented by the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. And he says, the sheep simply recognize the voice of the shepherd. They seem to have an ear for his voice and basically a complete inability to hear anyone else. Look at the passage. It's a really interesting description. It's not like the shepherd then offers some good reason. He doesn't shout, hey, sheep! 
guess what? I found some really good grass over here, some really good calm still water over there. Why don't you come follow me? He doesn't give those sorts of reasons. Basically what happens in the story is the shepherd calls and the sheep simply rise and follow. No plan for where they're going, no promise of a good pasture or water. He just says, let's go. And the sheep hear the voice and off they go. Jesus' very person is the plausibility structure for the choice to follow. He himself is what makes it reasonable. Uh, and simply seeing Jesus seems to be the argument for following him. Once one's heart is one to Christ, it's lost to all else. That's the image we get of following Christ in the gospel. So to Jesus, he says, yes, following me is worth it. Let me also point out that those who see Jesus clearly seem to think he is worth following. Now at this point, I'd love to be able to tell you some great stories about how I've seen Jesus really clearly in my life and that just transcended all other values and I followed him with complete abandon and I have this desperate passion just to see him. But I'm probably like many of you that I would love for that to be descriptively true of my life. And I do aspire to that being true of my life, but I'm not sure that that really captures my actual sentiments. I seem to have a bit of a foggy vision of Jesus. So let me lean on the words of Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, who seemed to see Jesus with a clarity that uh, simply embarrasses my own foggy perception of who Jesus is. Let me just his, read his words from a sermon he preached on uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where he talks about we shall become like him when we see him as he is. And here's what Spurgeon says. All of us who love his name have a most insatiable wish to behold his person. The thing for which I pray above all others would be forever to behold his face, forever to lay my head upon his breast, forever to know that I am his, forever to dwell with him. I one short glimpse, one transitory vision of his glory, one brief glance of his marred but now exalted and beaming countenance would repay a world of trouble. We have a strong desire to see him, Spurgeon writes, nor do I think that desire is wrong. And he goes on to describe Moses himself wanting to see God. Had it been a wrong wish arising out of vain curiosity, surely God would not have granted it. But instead, God did grant Moses' desire, and he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he shaded him with his hand, and he bade him look down at the skirts of his garments, because his face could not be seen. The psalmist, Spurgeon says, writes, I shall be satisfied when I see thy likeness. I shall behold thy face in righteousness. Saints on their deathbeds have expressed their fondest, dearest, and most blessed wish for heaven, longing to be with Christ, for that is far better. And nor ill, Spurgeon writes, did the sweet singer of Israel, uh, he's referring here to Isaac Watts, the famous hymn writer, put the words together when he humbly and sweetly said, uh, quote, millions of years my wondering eyes shall o'er thy beauties rove. In endless ages I'll adore the glories of thy love. So there's a beautiful phrase from a hymn by, by Isaac Watts that Spurgeon so, uh, cites. And then he concludes, we are all rejoiced to find such a verse as this, for it tells us that our curiosity shall be satisfied, our desire consummated, our bliss perfected, 
we shall see him as he is. And heaven will be ours, and all we ever dreamed of him and more shall be in our possession. Wow. That's Spurgeon's vision of the beauty and glory of seeing Jesus. And as I simply say, not only does Jesus say he's worth it, but those who see Jesus clearly also say he's worth it. And in some measure, even us who see him foggy, who see through the class darkly in this present age, see the hints of that beauty in him. So the answer to the question then, is Jesus worth it, would appear to be yes. But now let me pick up the second part of that. If Jesus is worth it, what are the consequences? What does that mean for us, for our daily lives? And let me just put it in a world, in a word, I'm sorry. It, that word would be alterations. Notice I'm not saying alterations, like alterations you might have on a garment or a suit, but alterations. By that I mean putting things on the altar. Uh, alter with an A, not alter with an E. If Jesus is worth it, then there's some things that need to go on the altar. We need to make some alterations. This is, of course, the point of the parable, right? This is the point of the two parables, that once we see Jesus is worth so much, you suddenly take all you have and basically put it on the altar of Jesus by buying the field or by buying the pearl. Jesus is worth it, so everything else goes on the altar. And please note, when you think about this, when you put something on the altar for God, sometimes you get it back. So you think famously of the example of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, but the result is he actually gets Isaac back. And sometimes when you put something on the altar, it ends up on the cross. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And in fact, he put the cup on the altar and he asked it to be removed. But then he said, nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. And God's will was that he drink that cup. And he ends up crucified on the cross. The point for our purposes is that first and foremost, everything goes on the altar first. And then we discover what comes back to us and what goes on to Jesus. So, point of the parable is worth it. Implication of the parable, things go on the altar. What are some of the things that go on the altar? What alterations do we need to make? Well, obviously, not even the analogy, the explicit teaching of this passage would be our money, our fortune, our wealth, our comfort, those sorts of things. Um, these things in the parable literally seem to be what are at stake. So obviously those things would be things included in that because we still have those things and we can often feel the tension, the competition between that and Jesus sometimes. Uh, here's an interesting way to think a little bit about how you're doing about putting your possessions, the things you have on the altar, how you're doing on, uh, you know, putting Jesus in effect first and those things second. You might take a look at your prayer requests and you might ask yourself, do my prayers prayer request? Does my prayer life look like alterations? Or does it look like, uh, well, does it look like requisition orders? Requests that are made that you're assuming will be granted. What you put on the altar sort of reveals who is on the throne. 
And if the things you're asking for in your prayer life are things that you get rather than things that you give, you get a pretty good bit of feedback as you're having a bit of a tension between putting Jesus on the altar and putting yourself on the altar. Now, it's not that we never ask for things. We're commanded to ask for things. But let me point out a significant part of our prayer life is reordering our affections to put our loves back in their proper order. And so... We reveal a lot by looking at our prayer life. What we put on the altar reveals who's on the throne, or perhaps more particularly, what you refuse to put on the altar reveals who you have on the throne. And in addition to things like money and our you know, life goals, comfort, homes, whatever those sorts of material goods might be, there's a lot of other commands in Scripture that make us feel kind of queasy at this point, right? Um, countless commands that kind of give us pause about who's on the throne. Don't look at a woman with you know, lust in the eye. It's like committing adultery and you're suddenly like, oh, if your eye causes a sin, pluck it out. And you're like, wow, that's a little unnerving. Don't be angry with your brother. Don't call him a fool. That's like murder. Um, if you don't give to your brother in need, how can you say the love of God abides on you? There's plenty of commands that can make us really nervous about whether or not we have really put our lives on the altar in Jesus on the throne. So... Those things are all good to look at. Let me just throw in kind of to wrap things up for the, the time today, uh, a particular, the, the, the 19 or the 2020-2021 bonus round uh, of what goes on the altar. And let me suggest that this might be high time for us to think about putting our tongues on the altar. Honestly, in the last eight to 10 months, I have been amazed and disappointed to see Christian discourse over the course, particularly kind of the last season of this election cycle. The world is supposed to know us by the love we have for one another. And yet I'm reading language like this from Christian leaders talking about other Christians. First quote, the only evangelicals who are going to vote for Joe Biden are those who have sold their souls to the devil. Wow. On the other hand, in voting for Trump, we sold out our biblical morals and Christian convictions for raw power. It's as simple as that. That's the way we talk about each other. Have you sold your soul or have you sold yourself out to raw power? Uh, that's the kind of sense we have about a person who votes the opposite way that we do. And I would just like to point out that doesn't sound very much like what James calls the wisdom from above. As he puts it, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Um, you know, you would think when you read a passage like that, that we would take a pause when we say things that are so far from being gentle or peaceable. When you make accusations claiming a person has sold their soul to the devil for no reason other than that they have voted the opposite way you did in an election. You'd think that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. But rather, Jesus said, blessed are the weaponizers, for they shall win the debate. Now, you may be saying, well, Rick, you don't understand what's at stake when you're saying that. These people may have really sold their souls to the devil. So here's the good news. We know exactly what to do if someone has sold their soul to the devil. We can read about it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and following. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents in gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, catch this, and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Did you hear what he said? It's possible that a person is captured by God to do, by the devil to do as well. What do we need to do? We restore that sort of a person in gentleness. We must not be quarrelsome. We must patiently endure evil. That's the language of the Bible. And I think sometimes we think that the way of following Jesus is the way for solving, is only a way for solving little things. When it comes to the big stuff, the bad stuff, we have to take matters into our own hands. And let me just say no. There's room on the altar for the big stuff as well. I speak to please Jesus, not win a debate. And if gentleness is what pleases him, I'd better learn gentleness. So let me just close with that thought. And let me encourage you to stop and think about alterations that might be made, that you might need to make in this coming week in the coming months to say, what do I need to put on the altar? Is it my wealth? Is it my tongue? Is it my rage over people voting the opposite way if I want to? Is it my rage over the behaviors that are approved of in our culture? What is it that I need to put on the altar and simply say, nonetheless, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Perhaps you need to learn the skills of gentleness. Perhaps you need to put some things about relationships or money or wealth or success on the altar. But let me just encourage you to do that. Why? simply because Jesus is worth it. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in Costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that i mm-hmm.
We hope that you have been encouraged by this morning's message. And as always, we'd invite you to consider the reflection questions we'll put up on the screen. And let me leave you with this wonderful benediction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen.